All right, good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 130. We're going to look at Psalm 130. And I just want to say, um, it's a great honor to be here. I was sitting over there and just reminded, the Lord wants me to honor him, and the Lord wants me to serve you. You're his children. I don't take this lightly. And so I hope that God is honored. I hope you are served and fed and nourished. Um, and it's just a great privilege to be up here. It's very humbling. Um, and so it's great to be here with you. Uh, before we go to Psalm 130, before I read it, before we pray, I want to just say to you that this sermon um, will function as a, as a type of call to faith. Every sermon, in a way, functions like that, to call people to faith in Christ. This is explicitly going to function that way, and it's because of the nature of what we're going to read. You're going to, you're going to see it as we go through it. The sermon is for everyone, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is a gift that God did in you, and you have put your hope in him. But oftentimes, I'm sure you can relate to this, I can, even as Christians, oftentimes like the man in the Gospels, we say to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so I want this sermon to strengthen your faith. God's word is meant to strengthen your belief, that you would call out to him. If you're not a believer here, and in this crowd, there's believers, there's unbelievers, there has to be. I don't say this to condemn you. I say this based on God's truth. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you have built your life on faulty ground. And what, whatever you hope in today, this morning, what you hope in will one day fail you. And so this sermon is a call to place your faith in the one who will not fail you. There is one who will not fail all of us. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the rock that we build our lives upon. So let's look at Psalm 130. Again, it's great to be here with you this morning. Um, and I love that, that I've been given this privilege. Thank you, Larry. Thank you to, to the elders. Um, I'm just so thankful to be here. Psalm 130. Let's look at Psalm 130. You may notice in your Bible that there is a title at the beginning of the psalm that reads, Song of Ascents. And by the way, you just want to keep that open the whole time. We're going to be looking down at this psalm the whole time. Do you see Song of Ascents? Okay, the reason for this is because Psalm 130 is the 11th Song of Ascent in a series of 15 that stretch from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. So it's right there in the middle. Many scholars believe that these psalms were sung by the Jewish people as they traveled to Jerusalem for the three yearly feasts. And as they literally ascended, some of you have been there, as they literally ascended to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount. So this would be a psalm that they would have sung to God. And so let's read Psalm 130 and then I'll pray for us this morning. Psalm 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive 
to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We are not deserving to even hear those eight verses, but you have allowed us to hear them this morning. We who have defied you and who have cast you aside in our lives, all of us, you serve us, you love us, you're merciful to to us, and we pray now, Lord, that you would give us faith. Father, I pray that you would strengthen all of us. We need to believe you. There's so many things that compete for our belief, for our trust, and all those things apart from you are false hopes. They will let us down. And so I pray that you would bless your people this morning and that you and you alone would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna do something a little bit different this morning. Because the chapter is only eight verses, as you've noticed, uh, I'm instead gonna just go through a verse at a time. So like I said, you can have your Bible open on your laps um, and it will be helpful for you um, just to follow along as we go through. So we're going to start in verse 1. There's a lot here. There's a wonderful psalm. Verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Did you know that you not only have permission from God's word to cry out to him, but you have encouragement as well? Did you know that? God's word encourages you to cry out to him. Christians are not called to stoicism, okay? We're not called to be stoics. You're not called to keep a poker face and remind God every time you pray that you have it together. You're not called to show God and everyone else for that matter how strong you are. We're not strong. We are not strong, amen. We are not called to show God how strong we are. Praise the Lord. God does not expect that from you. He does not want that from you. And so I ask you, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. They're not meant to condemn. I'd ask myself these questions as I prepared. When you pray, do you try to pretend to God that you have it together? Are your prayers really just a performance before God? That happens to Christians. We can do that. We've all done that. Christians will sometimes do that when they pray in the presence of others. It's a performance. Do you do that when you're alone with God also? Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Not even like 1%. Nothing. Out of the depths I cry to you. Look at that in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. That's where that cry comes from. A heart that sees he can do nothing. He is utterly dependent upon God. The psalmist doesn't cry out to God to show God how strong he is. Okay, it's not too flattering to cry out to somebody. Usually the one doing the crying out is in a position of need. And that's why the psalmist cries out to God. That's why we cry out to God. We are in need. Out of the depths I cry to you, to you, O Lord. Lord. Okay, Larry's talked about this many times. He's served us well. Lord, with all capital letters, you'll see that in your Bible. L-O-R-D, all caps. This is the name of God, Yahweh. He's crying out to Yahweh. Not some generic God. Not the God of Buddhism, Islam, 20th century or 21st century America, which is self. He's crying out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sovereign God, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the only God. That's the only one who's going to help him. The sovereign God, sovereign. We don't really use that in our vocabulary today. What does that mean? Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 135, just a page or two over, it talks about this Lord, this God, this sovereign God. And here's what it says in Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. God's sovereignty, the idea that he is in full control and does whatever he pleases, this idea of God's sovereignty does not mean that we no longer need to cry out to him. It means that we have a God who we can cry out to. Do you understand that? God's sovereignty is an encouragement for you to come to him. We can come to him because he's sovereign. Because he can actually intervene on our behalf. When we cry out to him, we have hope in knowing that he hears us and he has the power to act on behalf of his people because he is sovereign. And we see this very attitude in the next verse. You guys with me? I get all different looks up here. I wasn't expecting this. All right, stay with me. Verse 2. Here's what we see. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive, attentive to my pleas for mercy. All right, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Stay with me. When you pray, do you believe that you are actually talking to God? And don't just say yes. Think about it. When you pray, do you believe that you are actually talking to the living God? Do you believe that he's attentive to you? The Bible speaks from front to end of a God who's attentive to his people. Do you believe he's attentive to you? 
Or rather, do you deep down believe that your prayers are just reaching the ceiling? They're bouncing off the ceiling. They're coming right back to you. Do you believe that? Now you might say, no, 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 no. My prayers go past the ceiling. They get to God. I know God hears my prayers. I believe that. Okay, let me ask you another question. You may believe that. I'm not saying you don't, but let me ask you another question. Why do you pray? When you pray, why do you pray? I fear that sometimes, okay, I see this in myself, what I'm about to say. Sometimes the reason we pray is not the same reason the psalmist prayed. The psalmist prayed to call upon God to act on his behalf, to be attentive to him, to respond to him, to grant him mercy. The psalmist is clearly asking God to respond to him. For us, myself included, sometimes our prayers are really just therapeutic. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's just therapy. We're really not even talking to God. We're not calling out to him. We're not coming needy. We're not in need of his presence, in need of his grace, or at least that's what we think. That's the posture we come with. At the end of the day, our prayers are really just meditation, kind of like a Christian yoga without the stretching where we get centered before we start a busy day. I'm going to remember some truths about God. I'm going to get centered. I'm going to go. All right, I need to be careful here because we need to remember truth about God. That's what, that's what this is right now. I'm reminding you of truth. So I don't want to belittle that in terms of prayer. But oftentimes, prayer can be a way for us to tell God all the things we believe about him. Sometimes that is necessary. And we need to remind ourselves of who he is because we forget it. But I also wonder if we do this to avoid the part that deals with us calling out to him, to avoid actually calling out to him for mercy. If your prayer life is you continually preaching a sermon to God, something is wrong. All right, I say that humbly. I hope you're tracking with me. I hope you're, you're with me. That's not meant to condemn anyone. But prayer is more than you preaching a sermon to God. If you never ask God to act on your behalf, if you never go to him with the need and call upon him to help you, you remain in a position where you don't have to be vulnerable. You never have to relinquish control. You never have to hear him say no to your request. And it's not fun to hear a no from God. But I want to remind you this morning that God is a father And just like an earthly father, sometimes his answer to our prayers is a yes. Sometimes his answer is a no. But we are called to bring all our requests to him and trust him with that answer. You're called to do that. And that's to take, that's to bless you. That's a blessing that we are called to bring all our requests to him. When he answers with a yes, it will be because of his great love for you. 
And when he answers with a no, it will be because of his great love for you. On this point, you are encouraged to bring all your requests to God. All right, I'm going to say something here, and I, I, don't, I don't know what you're going to think of it, but s- stick with me. You are called to bring all your requests to God. Not just the ones that he's promised to answer with a yes. Sometimes we believe that we can only get, ask God for things he explicitly wants to give us in scripture. Spiritual things like peace, joy, kindness. If you pray for those things, God will give them to you. He wants you to go to him for those things. Pray for those things. But did you know that you can ask God for other things as well? You are free to bring all your requests to God. Not just the spiritual ones. I think sometimes we have this idea of God. I'm going to get back to Psalm 130. We have this idea of God as one who, if I ask God for something, that he in his sovereign ordination of all things has not determined to do before the foundation of the world, if I ask him for something that he already has ordained not to do, that somehow he's disappointed in that prayer. Whether God says yes or no, even when he says no, did you know that God is honored by you going to him and praying for something that he's already determined to say no to? God is honored by that prayer because you're going to him. He's the one who can answer it. I don't know, some of you, you pray for the salvation of your kids. I do too. Some of you, your kids are older. That's been heartbreaking to pray for that. I don't know, there's not a scripture in the Bible that says, so-and-so has been foreordained before the foundations of the world to be saved when he or she is 35 years old. We don't know that. God wants you to go to him with that prayer. Entrust that to him. Even the ones that he may say no to or not answer as you desire. If you call upon the Lord to intervene for you, your relationship with the Lord will grow in peace, joy, and great astonishment. And you will hear some amazing yeses. You will hear some amazing yeses. I wanted to tell a story. I can't. I don't have time. But my wife and I, Jane and I, we heard an amazing yes 10 years ago that I still think about. And it's, it was clear that God heard a prayer and intervened. Okay, God is not the God, you may have heard this before, who, who, who makes the clock, he winds it up, and he lets it go and just, just watches it. He's just watching the world turn. He's just hands off. That is not God. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is intimately involved in your life. And he loves to intervene and show himself. He loves to pull back a little bit of the curtain and show himself. And he will do that. When you, when you let your request be made known to him, when you cry out to him as one who is needy, 
He will answer with amazing yeses in your life. When you do that, he will answer with no's, some painful no's. But in the midst of the yeses and the no's, your intimacy with God will grow and you will know him in ways that you would not have known him if you had not gone to him with your deepest needs and your deepest desires. Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians 4 verse 6. I'm not making this up. Just listen. The Lord is at hand. Okay, that means he's coming back. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't hold them back. Let them be made, made known. All of them. Verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He'll give you peace of heart. He'll give you a sound mind. He loves to do that. So Joy Community Fellowship, have faith in God that he can be entrusted with all your requests. Don't overthink the sovereignty of God here. I'm gonna kind of end on this point and move on. But I think we as Christians tend to overthink God's sovereignty. We sometimes don't let our requests be made known to God because we overthink this. I think we get hung up here as Christians because going back to this idea that God's in full control, that he's sovereign, that we can then think, well, since he's fully in control, since he doesn't need me, that's true. He knows everything, that's true. And he's already made up his mind and our prayers really don't change anything. He's already made up his mind, he's sovereign. Okay, now I need to be careful here because in one sense, in a very true sense, God does not rely upon you or me for any new information. Okay, when you pray to God, you're not, you're not making him aware of something he didn't know before you prayed to him. When we pray, we don't tell him anything he doesn't already know. Isaiah 40 what man shows him, shows God, his counsel? Who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. God is sovereign. He does not need us for any new information. We don't make him privy to something he didn't already know. When you pray... You are not making God aware of something. But even though we believe this great truth, it is a great truth. Praise God I'm not making him aware of something he didn't know. We're in trouble if that's going on. Right, that's a great truth. But we sometimes take this truth, this beautiful truth, and we wrongly apply it and assume that because it's true, we are not to say like the psalmist, hear my voice. You are to cry out to God and say, hear my voice. You have permission. Brothers and sisters, God does not need your voice to help with his decision making, but you are called by his word to cry out to him, verse one, 
of Psalm 130 and to ask him, verse 2, to hear your voice. So don't be ashamed to do that. God loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear the voice of his children. God's power and control of all things is not meant to be a deterrent to you praying, but rather a great encouragement to you to call out to the only one who can truly help you. It's an encouragement. So when you pray, I'm going to move on to verse 3 here. Don't forget that you are talking to a person. You're talking to a person. Not some force, like in Star Wars. Okay, God is a lot more glorious than some inanimate force. God the Father is a person. He has desires. He has passions. He's a person. We are made in his image, which is why we can relate to him and know him. And because he's a person, prayer is not just therapeutic or meditative, it's transactional. You go to God with your requests for mercy and he hears you and gives you mercy. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Luke 11, what father among you? Okay, we have fathers among us. This is for you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, that's to me too. God's not politically correct, by the way. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit, his very spirit, to those who ask him. Ask God to give you his Holy Spirit. He wants to do that. God is attentive to your voice. He has solved your greatest problem, your sin and rebellion against him and alienation from him. He has solved all of this by dying in your place on the cross and by adopting you into his family. The greatest expression of his mercy is what he does on the cross by solving the greatest problem we have. And because of this, he now hears you. He is not a passive listener. Okay, I, I don't want to speak for my wife, but I'm just going to say it. I get the sense that sometimes she thinks I'm not a great listener. Okay? I have been known to be hearing very important things and then fall asleep in the midst of that, okay? I'm not alone. I hope I'm not alone in that. Psalm 121, the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. Wives, your husband might be a bad listener. God the Father is an attentive listener. He hears all your prayers. Psalm 50, call upon me. In the day of trouble, I will deliver you. Not I might. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 130, verse 3. Let's continue in Psalm 130. Those two verses are the longest that I'm taking, by the way. So don't, don't get nervous. Psalm 130, verse 3. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If God marked our sin, if he kept track of all of our sin, if he checked the box every time we sinned, if he checked the box just one time we sinned, none of us could stand. But God is not like that. Praise the Lord that God is not in the business of marking our iniquities. Some of us, okay, we might be in the business of marking other people's iniquities, but God is not in the business of marking ours. Do you hear that? Praise the Lord. Jeremiah 31, speaking of the new covenant that God will make with the people, with his people, that covenant that we as Christians are part of. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God doesn't mark down all your sins and keep a record of them so that he can look around and see that record and rehash all the evil that you and I have done to him. God does not store that record so that he can take it off a shelf whenever he feels like looking at it. He has every right to do that, but he doesn't. Colossians 2 tells us that he forgives all, all of our trespasses. How does he do that? Colossians 2 verse 14, by canceling the record, it's a long record, of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, I'm going to say something here in just a moment. And I want you to hear this. Again, I'm not saying anything that I've come up with. I'm just letting God's word preach. The Bible preaches. I'm just telling you what it says. I'm going to say something based on the authority of God's word, and I believe there are people here who need it who need to hear this. I want you to hear it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God does not want to keep a record of your sins against him. It's not just that he doesn't keep a record. He does not want to. Do you believe that? It's not in his heart to mark your iniquities. Psalm 107, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. He, is loving kind, he has loving kindness towards you. He does not want to keep a record of your wrongs. Continuing in Psalm 130 verse four, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God doesn't mark our iniquities. He forgives them. The response we have is fear. All right, this might seem counterintuitive. He forgives us and so we fear him. All right, I'm going to explain that. Not a type of cowering fear. We are accepted by him through Jesus Christ. We don't need to run from him. We can now run to him with our need. So it's not a cowering fear, but it's a fear that is a type of 
acknowledgement that this God, it's a realization and it's an acknowledgement that this God, this good king of the universe, who has the rightful authority to damn me in hell forever, if this God has instead decided to forgive me from his heart because of his loving kindness, then what other people think and believe about me and about him has no bearing on the truth. I will listen to him. This is what fear is, part of it, I believe. I will listen to him. I speak of all of us. We will acknowledge him. He is the voice we will hear. He is the one we will regard. He is the one we will fear. That's what that is. He's forgiven me. I will fear him. Okay? We need this, especially in 2021. We need to fear God and not other people. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. Isaiah 2 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Listen, I understand, you know, you may have... You may have had a Humanities 101 course in college and you may think that there are multiple genders and there are multiple ways to be married, but there's a God who saved me. He's eternal. And he says that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. We don't need to regard the opinions of others. We love others. We should pray for their salvation. But there is one who we fear. And his word is the word that we hear and listen to. Not all these other voices. We hear him. There is a direct correlation. It's right there with what I read in Psalm 130. There's a direct correlation between your forgiveness by God and how much you fear other people. If you have a difficult time fearing what other people think of you, and we all do, okay? I'm, not, I'm preaching to myself. But if you struggle with that, don't just try to press through it and, you know, grin and bear it. Go back to the Lord and see who he is and what he has done for you. He will one day split the sky and he will vindicate his people in the sight of everyone. We fear him. We fear him by his grace. He's forgiven us. Psalm 25, the friendship. Did you know you're God's friend if you belong to him? Abraham was called a friend of God. You're a friend of God if you're a believer in Jesus. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. And so what is the response of our psalmist, our psalmist, excuse me, in Psalm 130? Let's look at verses five and six. What's the response? Verse five, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen 
for the morning. The heart that fears God because of his great forgiveness is the heart that hopes in God and waits for his redemption. Okay, I want to talk briefly about this idea of the morning. Did you see that in verses 5 and 6? This idea of him waiting for the morning. What is that? It's very dark in our world right now. Okay, we know that. It's been dark for thousands of years. Okay, so nothing is new. Nothing is new under the sun. It's been dark for thousands of years. We're just becoming very much aware of it right now in 2021. We need the morning. We need the morning. I was just reading in John 13 the other day. So John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Stay with me here. He washes the disciples' feet. It says, after he washes the disciples' feet, Satan enters Judas's heart. Satan enters Judas's heart. And then Judas leaves, and the disciples don't even really know why he's leaving. There's confusion. And do you know what it says next? After Satan enters his heart and Judas leaves, it's one sentence. It says, and it was night. Okay, that's not a coincidence that it says that. It's not just talking about the physical night. And it was night. What is night? What is night in the Bible? Night is the time when the sun's light is totally blocked, totally obscured by the earth. The sun is on the opposite side of the earth from where you are. The sun is away from you. There is no life in the darkness. Nothing can grow and thrive. It's a time when people can't see. They're not aware of what's right in front of them. They're disoriented. They're confused. They can't make sense of the world. It's the night. And it's a time when people do things that they wouldn't have the brazenness to do if it was daytime. That's the night. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follow, follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, I was in Ocean City with my family a few weeks ago. Uh, I got up early one morning and saw the sunrise. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you can actually look at the sun for a few minutes just as it rises and it doesn't hurt your eyes. I'm not sure if you're even supposed to do that. Okay, some scientists would probably tell me not to do that. But you actually, you get maybe 90 seconds where you look at the sun. And you think to yourself, you can already tell as you're looking, I don't have much more time. Because it just grows brighter and brighter. What will that moment be like? Think with me. What will that moment be like? when Jesus Christ breaks the horizon and you see him. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you don't repent of your unbelief and turn to him, that moment will be terrifying for you. I say that again based on God's word, not my opinion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that moment will be filled with more joy than you can imagine. You don't even have the capability right now to experience that. 
He will give it to you in that moment. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. It continues on, the former things, the night has passed away. It will be gone and vanquished forever. As one author says about believers in that moment that Jesus Christ appears and transforms the darkness into light, the night into an eternal daytime, here's what this author says. Everything, everything you've ever longed for, believer, will be multiplied by a trillion in your heart in that first second before God. And we're worried about what somebody thinks that is in contrary to God's word. We're to fear him. Psalm 130, verses five and six. Let me read it again. I wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Wait for the morning. Moving on to verse seven. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. That's a beautiful verse. Did you catch that? With the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. There is hesed. There is hesed. All right, that's the, that's the Hebrew word whereby it's translated steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, comes from hesed. And that Hebrew word is often translated steadfast love or mercy or loving kindness. And really, there are many different English words that we use to try, to try to capture the meaning of the Hebrew word hesed. H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It's as if the word means something so deep and so profound that there really isn't a way to fully capture what it means. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, there is hesed. One commentator describes that word, hesed, as the following. A persistent and unconditional tenderness, kindness, and mercy which drives God to seek after man and hide his shame. That's what that's getting at. God's desire to seek after you and to hide your shame. Praise God that we have a God like that. I need that. I need my shame hidden, and so do you. We get a glimpse of this as parents, don't we? I'm hesitant to say that because it's not just limited to parents, but I was thinking about this. If you're a parent, you do at times get a glimpse of this. As a human being, you get a glimpse of this. But this desire to hide someone else's shame, to protect them, to put your covering over them, that is the love times a trillion that God has for you. You get a glimpse of it. He gives you a little glimpse to show you what he is like. Because of that steadfast love, continuing in verse seven, 
With God is plentiful redemption. Not halfway redemption. Not, I guess I need to save these people over here, redemption. I mean, look at this Joy Community Fellowship crew. Not halfway redemption. Plentiful redemption, overflowing. Your sins against God are the greatest offense in the universe. The angels cannot believe that he is forgiving us and merciful to us. They're the greatest offense in the universe. They marvel. And instead of God giving us the cup of wrath, which he has the right to do, which if he did, the angels in heaven would applaud him. I know that's not politically correct. We are not misunderstood. God understands us fully. He sees our sin. Instead of giving us that cup of his wrath, Jesus Christ drinks it on our behalf and God the Father gives us the cup of his fellowship. Psalm 23, you, speaking of God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, shall pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, Psalm 103, not Psalm 130. Psalm 103, I just want you to listen to this. My brother-in-law read this on vacation. I've heard this psalm many times. This never hit me. And I think Craig read it earlier. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Okay, some in this life, all of them in the next. Who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That last verse gets me. That never, that never hit me. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Not who tosses it over to you like you toss a, a bone to a dog. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He puts it on your head like someone would put a crown on a king or queen. It doesn't seem right. Am I alone in saying that does not seem right? I, I do not deserve that. That's the point. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. God is a merciful God. He's a God who loves to redeem. He doesn't do it out of duty. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He wants to pursue you and hide your shame. With him is plentiful redemption. Verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Israel, who is Israel? Israel ultimately represents all those who call upon the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, and who place their trust in him. They are Jews. The true Israel is Jews. They include Jews who call upon the Messiah and Gentiles who recognize Jesus as the hope of the nations and call upon them also, call upon him also. 
Those Jews and Gentiles make up Israel and those, and they are those who Jesus Christ will gladly redeem from all their iniquities. Not some, not 99%, not the ones that aren't too egregious, that we're not embarrassed about people knowing, not just the iniquities that are fashionable and acceptable in 2021. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So brothers and sisters, I want to close by calling you to place your faith. I love that verse that, that Larry read, First Peter, to set your hope fully. Do you, put, do you just put like one, one foot on it? Or do you step into that hope? Fully, to put all your weight upon it. To set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to do that. Call out to him freely, knowing that he hears you and will readily grant you mercy because of his steadfast love for you. If you wait for him, he will not let you down. And so I'm going to end with Psalm 130. I just want you to listen to it. We're going to read it one more time and pray Freely call out to God that he would give you faith to believe it. All right, this message, there's nothing profound about what I just said. I just read to you the, do you know I just, notice I just read to you verses. Our need is not some new information. Our need is faith. Pray that God would give you faith. Verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for faith. We ask for mercy. We know you love to give it, and we pray this week you would remind us of who you are, of who we are, and that you would give us your Holy Spirit. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.